0: Good morning. Find your seats. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. Exodus 21, verse 33. We're going to be reading through a pretty large portion of Scripture this morning. So if you would uh, stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, starting in verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration, he shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beasts shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies... There shall be no blood guilt for him but if the sun has risen on him there shall be blood guilt for him he shall surely pay if he has nothing then he shall be sold for his theft if the stolen beast is found alive in the in his possession whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep he shall pay double if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution." If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any of lost thing, of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep saved, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be uh, between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property, the owner shall uh, accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence, he shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Dear Father, Lord God, God, we uh, thank you for the wisdom that's found in this passage, Lord. We thank you for, really, the justice that's found in this passage and how to settle disputes and how to deal with theft and how to interact with one another, Lord. Although these laws don't directly apply to us, they were given to Israel, Lord. We do see the wisdom and the principles and your moral law that is underneath them, Lord. And I pray that we can... Learn, God, that we see the importance of making uh, reconciliation with those that we sin against, Lord, and uh, seeking forgiveness, God, that we take these principles and apply them to our lives, God, and more importantly than all of this, Lord, I pray this morning that we see your gospel, Lord, uh, the good news that Reconciliation can happen between God and man, but only through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let that be foundational in in all that we do and all that we are and all that we think, Lord. Help us see that this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing to walk through, uh, again, what theologians call the book of the covenant, and that is Exodus 21 through... 23, we'll see that Moses calls this portion of Scripture the Book of the Covenant, and that's where theologians get this name. It's mostly civil laws meant to govern Israel. The last two weeks, we looked at Exodus 21, 1 through 32, which is mostly the application of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. We saw in this portion of Scripture the protection of the most vulnerable in society, slaves, the unborn, It was really the application of this commandment, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Today, the reading that we just did, Exodus 21, 33 through Exodus 22, verse 15, is the application of the seventh commandment, you shall not steal, you shall not steal. Today, I'm going to be doing something a little different. Instead of walking verse by verse through this entire passage which we just read through. There's a lot of verses, obviously. I really want to focus on four. Four verses, and that's Exodus 21, 1 through 4. And, and the reason I want to do this, there's two, two, two reasons I want to do this, is first, all the verses surrounding Exodus 21, 1 through 4, the verses just before and the verses after, everything I just read is actually pretty straightforward. In fact, if you go home this afternoon, read through it, maybe take a, a, a study Bible or something to kind of clarify some things if you need to, uh, you'll see that you will agree with most everything in there, and it's principles that, that we believe in, and they're pretty straightforward. I, I was thinking, well, why, why does this portion of Scripture seem straightforward? Uh, I think it's because our founding fathers based the laws of this land off the uh, Bible, and therefore a lot of these laws and principles just make sense. And not just our founding fathers, but Western civilization as a whole was, was really based off of scripture and the laws found within scriptures. And so a lot of these principles are principles that we've grown up with, even though we are walking away from a biblical worldview. They're still there, and you'll read through them, and you'll go, yeah, this makes sense. Second reason why I want to focus on just four verses in this entire passage is because these four verses, verses one through four, deal directly with theft. All the surrounding verses deal with different types of theft that, that aren't Maybe as straightforward as just stealing someone's property. But verses one through four deal directly with theft, meaning verses one through four are at the heart of the seventh commandment you shall not steal. And really, since this whole passage is about. We got the speaker going. Okay, good. Uh, it's not the first time that's happened. It's make me question what I'm teaching. Um, Should we really be in the law? No, okay. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, This whole passage is about the seventh commandment, and since these four verses are at the heart of the seventh commandment, this really is the heart of our whole entire passage this morning. So let me just read these four verses again. Uh, Exodus 22, verses 1 through 4, starts in verse 1, and it says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox, or a goat, or a sheep, he shall pay double. Again, all the laws in our passage, the the entire passage, what I read this this morning, um, deal, they're the application of the seventh commandment, they're the application of you shall not steal, but these four verses directly deal with theft. Therefore, they're the core of the passage. So let's just look at these four verses. Let me start by pointing out another chiasm. We talked about this last week, so we should be somewhat familiar. It's a, it's a style of writing that we see throughout uh, the Old Testament often. Um, it's, it's a little foreign to us, but I, I'm sure you probably saw it as I just read those four verses that there's some type of chiasm there. Again, this is a very simple one. It's just meant to help the Israelites memorize. It has a rhythm to it, and it goes like this. A B B A. A, B, B, A. A, verse 1. B, verse 2. B, verse 3. A, verse 4. Meaning, and this is the reason why I'm putting this out, verse 1 and 4 are related. They're connected to each other. Verse 2 and 3 are related and are connected to each other. Because we're not used to chiasms, I want to group them together that way, and I think it will help us understand this passage a little bit better. So this morning, we're going to start with the outside of the chiasm and look at verses one and four. Then we're going to look at the inside of the chiasm, look at verses two and three. And then finally, we're just going to end with some application or what we can learn from these four verses from our passage, really as a whole this morning. So let's start with the outside of the chiasm. Look at verse 1 one more time. It says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, let me start by asking, did you notice that there's qualifications in verse 1? and They're important. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, kills it, or sells it. Those are two important qualifications. So why, why these qualifications? Why would a thief kill the animal or sell the animal quickly? Well, simply, he's trying to get rid of the evidence. He steals something. He kills it, implying he kills it to eat it. So he kills it, processes it, so no one can tell whose animal it was, right? If it had a brand or something on it, you don't know whose animal it was because it's dead. Or he sells it real quick to make a profit, and the evidence is outside of his hands now. In other words, it's a man caught stealing, and the property that he stole, the animal that he stole, is lost or damaged because he's trying to get rid of the evidence very quickly. If this is the case, then he, the thief, shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In other words, four or five times its value of what he's stolen if he tries to get rid of it quickly. Now, why? Were oxen five and sheep four? I don't know. Most people just guess because oxen were worth more than sheep were worth. Um, There's all types of different reasons that people give. Uh, But the the principle is pretty straightforward, that if the, the, the property is gone, it's four or five times its value that you have to repay back, determined by the elders, which, when you think about it, it's pretty steep. If you could just imagine this law today, if someone steals a car and tries to get rid of it, right, by selling its parts maybe, tearing it apart, tries to get rid of it, so the evidence is gone, he gets caught somehow, he would have to repay four or five times the value of that car. That's pretty steep. Here's another observation I want to point out in this law because I think it's important. Where does that money go? Or the value, four oxen, five or five oxen, four sheep, where does that go? It goes back to the victim. It's extremely important. It doesn't go to the state, it doesn't go to the government, it goes right back to the victim of this crime. Meaning, there's a redemptive aspect to this law. We're seeing God's justice here in this passage, let me just stop by saying this. When I say God's justice, I just mean justice, because God's justice is true justice. There's a redemptive aspect, and we see the heart of God in this passage. There's a redemptive aspect, uh, uh, seeking uh, uh, reconciliation, or it was to make restitution for the crime that was committed, and that's important. So That's verse 1. It's connected to verse 4. So if you would look at verse 4 now, again, remember the chiasm. Verse 1 and 4 are related. Those are the A's on the outside. And it's pretty obvious. Verse 4 goes like this. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, in other words there's no harm, there's no damage done to the property or the animal that was stolen. Maybe he didn't have time to to kill it it or sell it yet. But if there is no damage, if there is no harm, if it's not lost, then whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now, Double probably means um, give back what he has stolen and then add another of its value. All right, so give back what was stolen and then, then another. So it's double the value that, that was stolen back. Again, it's still pretty steep, but not near as steep as four or five times the value. In fact, if you think about it, if the animal is gone and you're paying back four or five times the value, you're paying out of pocket four or five times. If the animal is found, you're giving back what you have found, and one animal out of pocket. Does that make sense? So it's, it's a, a lot less steep than if the animal isn't found. And this applies not just to animals. It applies to, to all type of property, value, money. And we learn this in um, verse 9. Look at verse 9 real quick. Exodus 22, verse 9 says, For every breach of trust, whether it's an ox... For a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing. Which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the Lord, the one whom God condemns as a thief, in other words. That's what this whole passage is about. There's different ways of stealing someone's property. Whoever God condemns as a thief shall pay double to his neighbor. Therefore, again, if you steal something and the property is not found... You pay four or five times the value. It's the worst type of theft in other words. If you steal something and the property is found, it doesn't matter if it's an animal, someone's clothes, money, gold, if it is found, there's no damages to to it. You just pay double. But there's an even lesser penalty, and I think this is extremely important. It's not found in our passage this morning, but it's connected to our passage very clearly in the Pentateuch. So if you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 6 now. Leviticus 6, and we'll be starting in verse 1. It says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in the matter of the deposit or security or through robbery, again, this is all theft, this is all stealing, the seventh commandment, and there's different ways of stealing than just pure robbery, and we see that in our passage, if you read through it later, you'll see that it's all different ways of robbery. Let me just point something out real quick before we move on, who, who is this, this sin against? Verse two, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against Yahweh by deceiving his neighbor, it's two. Primarily Yahweh and a sin against neighbor, deceiving the neighbor. Let's keep going. And he says, through robbery, or if he has opposed his neighbor, or if he found something lost and lied about it, again, all types of stealing, swearing falsely, if any of All these things that the people do and sin thereby, always people sin, or by stealing, by theft. Verse 4 If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery. Now let me stop there. I think it's important that I point out the phrase, realize his guilt. It doesn't say feel guilty. He feels guilty because he realizes he's actually guilty. If he realizes he's guilty of stealing, right, and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got from oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, look what it says. He shall restore it in full and should add a fifth to it and give to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Meaning, a man steals something, he feels guilty because he, he is guilty, he realizes his guilt, he, he's broken the seventh commandment. Before getting caught, before anyone finds out that he's the one that stole the thing, whatever it is, or animal, if he comes and admits his guilt, he only has to pay back one and a fifth of its value. That means what he has stolen, and only a fifth of his own value out of his own pocket. Does that make sense? And if you're a, a math major or engineer, and we have a lot of engineers in our church, that's 125 or 20%. And I say, I'm not, so 125 would be wrong. Okay, 120%, let me go back and take my math, of its value. So let me just make this clear, because I think it's important that we see what's going on in all these passages as we add them together. If a person steals something and gets rid of the evidence, he is to pay four or five times its value back. That's four or five hundred percent of the value, all of it out of pocket. And if a person is caught stealing, but the property is found, he is to pay double the value. That's two hundred percent, right? I'm checking my head. Where's my math people? All right, let's just keep going. But a person steals something and realizes his guilt, repents before getting caught, he is to return the property and add a fifth of its value 20%. Now, there's still a penalty, but it's minimal compared to the first two crimes. This is important. It's important because it teaches us how God responds to a heart of repentance there is more grace and mercy to a sinner who has repented right has a repentant heart and it's evidenced by him admitting feeling the guilt coming forward before the crime was caught there's still a penalty the theft right to the thief there's still a penalty for him still had to make restitution but the penalty was way less than the first two crimes so this is the outside portions of the chiasm. Let's look at the middle of the chiasm now. So if you would turn back to Exodus 22. The middle of this chiasm. Remember, it's A, B, B, A. That's kind of how this chiasm is set up. Verses 1 and 4 go together, and verses 2 and 3 go together. Look at verse 2. It says this, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. And this is pretty straightforward. If a thief is found breaking in and the owner kills him, there shall be no blood guilt, meaning that the owner is not liable for the death. Right? You know, it's a justified killing and in one sense. Remember, the sixth commandment is, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. And this is one of the places that we clearly see that murder is uh, intentionally killing an innocent human being. Murder is not protecting your life or family in a situation like this. Right? Therefore, it's not murder. And He's not liable. But, verse three, look at this. But, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Meaning a thief breaks in during the daytime, and the owner kills the thief. The owner is liable for his death. There shall be blood guilt for him. Now, when you first read this, it seems weird, and for us modern Americans, we go through this and read this. I know the first time I read through this, I'm like, okay, there's something behind this. As a matter of fact, when I first read this, and I think for a lot of us when we read this, it almost seems superstitious. Like, you're allowed to kill someone on even days, but on odd days, don't kill them, right? Like... That's kind of how it comes across. But if you sit down and think about it, I think it makes sense. So let's kind of just reason through this together. When someone breaks in at night, you don't know his intentions. You don't know if this is a thief or someone trying to attack your family. In other words, a thief or a murderer. You don't know. Therefore, you're allowed to defend yourself and your family because this is a dangerous situation, and it's hard to tell how dangerous it actually is at night. But if someone is trying to break in during the daytime, you probably can tell what his intentions are. If he's trying to attack you or your family, or if he's just trying to steal something. And this makes sense. Again, just follow along with me, because I I think there's a couple of, I guess, qualifications, a couple of things that we need to point out for this to, to make some sense to us as modern Americans. Remember, this is the civil law, meaning it's the application of God's moral law, to the nation of Israel in a particular situation. There are a couple differences between ancient Israel and today that I think are important to point out to help this passage make a little bit more sense to us. For one thing, there was no electricity. Just think about that for a second. How hard it would be to get light in a room or in the house. All we do is turn on a switch. In fact, we probably have motion lights, so someone's trying to break in, it lights up the house some sort. Right? Nights were extremely dark, especially if it wasn't a full moon out. Therefore, people were way more vulnerable at night in ancient Israel than we are at night today, even though we still are more vulnerable at night than daytime because of the light. They were way more vulnerable, and we got to keep that in mind. Right? A man was allowed to protect his family, himself and his family, at night, even with legal or lethal force, because the family was most vulnerable at night to loss of life. But there's a second thing that we need to understand that is very obvious, but you need to think about it as in relation to ancient Israel. The second thing is this. The Israelites didn't have guns. Now think about that for a second. That means during the daytime... If you or your family were at a safe distance from a robber, you can tell, right? If you can tell that this guy is just trying to steal something, you're safe distance from him. Really, no one's life is at risk there. The, the law is saying don't attack a guy over property, in other words. Put your life in danger and that person's life in danger if you're a safe distance. away, The best thing I can think of is like, if you have a camera at home and you see someone stealing something in your house, it's not smart to run home with a gun and try to confront the guy. You should call the police, right? It's the same principle here. Besides, um, because you can tell if the thief, uh, the distance, it's not worth risking your life for the thief. Instead, get the proper authorities, which are the elders, get a group of men, to safely apprehend the guy, confront the person that's stealing something. Now, there's a different situation, that's a different situation than today. And So let me say this. Anyone can threaten your life from a distance today with a gun. Even during the daytime. I think this is one of the reasons why this law seems so odd to us when we first read it. Because today, if someone's trying to break in your house... Right? Obviously, trying to break in your house during the daytime, that's a threat to life. <laughs> because you don't know if that guy has a gun or not, or what he's capable of doing. Does that does that make sense, the difference? Day or night. Right? Remember, these laws are situational for ancient Israel. Therefore, we, we need to focus on the general principle behind these laws, not necessarily the application of the laws for ancient Israel. So what's the, the general principle? I think there's two kind of main principles, and it's amazing, God's law, how I believe these two things balance each other out so well. The first one is this. We are allowed to protect ourselves and our family even with lethal force. I think that's clear in this passage. But that's balanced out with the second principle. No one should use legal force unless it's absolutely necessary. Meaning, someone's life, or personal um, health is is on the line. And you just see a perfect balance here in these two laws put side by side. These two verses teach us that we're allowed to defend our lives and our family's lives, but it also teaches us that property is not equal to human life. Even the life of a thief who's made in the image of God. Again, a perfect balance there. Instead, the thief shall be caught, the proper authorities, again, and that day would be the elders. Right? Proper authorities should be sought after, right, to, to apply the proper penalties that are, are appropriate <coughs> in this situation. And for Israel, look at the end of verse 3. It says this, he, this is the thief, he shall surely pay. And we've already gone over what the payment is four times or double, depending on what happens. And if he has nothing, in other words, the thief can't pay, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, he shall pay off his debts for thievery by becoming a slave and making restitution by working off his debts. And we've talked about slavery the last two weeks, and if you missed those two sermons, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. And this kind of completes that whole idea. Again, Verses 1 through 4 are just so key in understanding this whole entire passage. Kind of get your minds wrapped around verses 1 through 4. The, the rest of the passage really makes sense. Exodus 21, through Exodus 22, verse 15. Again, this is the application of the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. But verses 1 through 4 are really the heart of the passage because it deals directly with theft, with robbery. So this leads me to the last portion of this sermon. And this is where we're going to spend some time here. What can we learn from Exodus 22, 1 through 4? I have three main things, and there's way more than three things. And as you read through it, I I think there's some pretty straightforward principles that you can pull from Exodus, again, 22. Um, But I have three things that I just want to point out, that I think are important enough for me to point out this morning. The first one is this, and this might be surprising. I think our passage this morning can teach us some very valuable parenting principles. Very valuable parenting principles. Again, that may be surprising because I don't think a lot of us parents go to Exodus 22 or the Old Testament civil law for parenting advice or parenting tips. But just think about it for a second. This passage teaches us God's justice. How God wants Israel to deal with crime, and sin, and theft. Right? How to punish a sinner. Therefore, there is some amazing counsel here for us parents and, and, and to apply, and it's really not just for us parents, but in a lot of different situations, but especially in, in parenting. Let me just remind you the different types of penalties. Okay? That if a person steals something and gets rid of the evidence, it's four times the value of the, the thing stolen. If a person is caught stealing, but the property is found... He used to only pay back double, which is a lot less than four times. But if a person steals something, realizes his guilt, and admits to the crime before getting caught, he only had to return the property and pay a fifth. A fifth of its value. Now, let's just apply this to parenting. I think it's a very valuable application here. If my child does something wrong, and then tries to get rid of the evidence by lying or hiding what he has done wrong, this action warrants the highest punishment, the highest consequence available. And personally, I just want to say this, my heart's broken. I'm not going to use that to uh, manipulate my child, but inwardly, my heart's broken because not only have they sinned, but they have lied to me. I, I expect my kids to sin. They're sinners. I sin. Like, why would I expect any less from my kids, right? But that relationship's broken because they lied to me, and it breaks my heart, right? And that's the natural response. I mean, we're born with a sin nature, so natural, I really mean that. Literally, it's their natural, in, in, or natural tendency, we'll say that, tendency is to, when they fail, when they sin, is to lie and hide it. That causes the worst type of consequence because I want them to know that lying and hiding is probably the bigger deal than the sin that's happened. Now, if my child does something wrong and gets caught, but he or she is honest about their sin, it's going to be less of a punishment. And really, in my heart, I have hope. <laughs> My hope is that my kid loves me and trusts me enough to be honest when he's caught in sin. That's a big deal, and it takes a long time to build that trust as a a father and mother, and we should be seeking to have that trust with our kids where they trust you enough to say, yes, I I messed up um, when they're caught in sin. But if my child does something wrong, then because of their guilt... Again, not the feeling of guilt, not just the feeling of guilt, but but because they understand they truly did something wrong, right, within their heart, and they come to me and confess it before they are caught, this may sound weird, but my heart is rejoicing. (laughs) Because again, my kids are going to sin. We're all gonna sin. Kids are sinners. But this shows a repentant heart. This really shows not just a trust in me, but I believe it shows, at least as an indication, of a godly sorrow over sin. They understand that they, they have sinned against a God that, that is good, that they love, and they want to make it right. There's still going to be a consequence because our kids need to learn that there are earthly consequences for sins. God may forgive us, and, and if we ask for forgiveness to God, he'll forgive us 100%. It doesn't mean there isn't earthly consequences for sins. There, there are, and our kids need to understand that. But it's going to be way less of a consequence than any of the other scenarios. And before we move on to two other things that we can learn, I think there's one more principle that is extremely important in parenting that we can find from our passage this morning. We should teach our children how to seek Reconciliation. I feel like this is just a lost, I want to say art, but it's more than art. It's a, a moral issue within our culture. We, we don't know how to seek reconciliation between each other. We need to teach our kids how to ask for forgiveness when they sin. And if sin against someone else, another man, they need to ask for forgiveness and how to make restitution if possible. We see that clearly. This is God's heart for the people of Israel. It's the heart that we need to get across to our children and ourselves. We should seek reconciliation between each other and our relationships, especially within the church. And if we have sinned, we should be willing to ask for forgiveness. And if we've been sinned against, we should be willing to forgive. We should model this for our children. So there's some important parenting advice. Again, Exodus 22, the law, who would have known, Right? Second thing we can learn from our passage, just on a totally different note, and this is super important. When we still, when we break the seventh commandment, and this is any commandment, but let's focus on the seventh. When we steal, in all the different types of ways, and again, I encourage you to read that passage, because there's all different types of ways we still. Most of us in here probably haven't committed robbery in recent years, we'll say that, but there may be other ways you have stolen. Right? When we still we are primarily sinning against god not man now this is so key it seems like stealing is primarily a sin against man right? horizontally not god vertically i think this is why a lot of people don't understand just scripture and the gospel because if i make things right with the person i've stilled against stole against they think they're good they see the seventh commandment, we've talked about this. this, is the second half of the ten commandments, which deals with our relationship, horizontal relationships, our relationships with neighbors, our relationships with one another. But whenever we still, whenever we break any of the ten commandments, no matter how big or small, again, on a horizontal level, we are primarily sinning against God on a vertical level. Remember, there's three types of penalties in the passage the passages we looked at this morning. If someone steals and lies, four times its value, 400%. If someone steals and is caught, but doesn't lie or has the property with them, it's two times its value, that's 200%. And if someone steals but repents, admits to the crime before being caught, is willing to give back what he has stolen, then he only has to pay 20% of the value of what he has stolen. It's the smallest punishment out of all three of these crimes. But here's the problem. That only brings reconciliation between man and man. There's still a problem between God and man. These penalties don't bring reconciliation between God and man. And this is so important. I I believe this is missed by many Christians, if not Christians, people in our culture it's so important that without understanding this, this will send you to hell for eternity. The cost of reconciliation between God and man is infinitely higher. Turn back to Leviticus 6. And look at verse 4. Remember, I already pointed out in Leviticus 6, that it's very clear in this passage that when you steal something you're you're sinning against Yahweh first right? and your neighbor but Yahweh first primarily and that's verse 1 but look at verse 4 again it says if you if if he has sinned again the context here is theft all different ways of of stealing verse 4 if you have sinned and or if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he's gotten by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the loss of things that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, shall give it back in full, and shall add a fifth to it. This is the least, right? The the least penalty, the least worst crime, if you would say, out out of all the crimes we went over. And give it to him to whom it belongs And on that day, he realizes his guilt. Again, it's the smallest penalty, 120%, bringing reconciliation between man and man, but what about God? Look at verse 6. It starts with an extremely important word, and. He's not done. And. the The thief, in other words, is to seek reconciliation between man and man, the 120%. And he shall bring to the priests as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. This teaches us that only death can bring reconciliation between God and man. When we sin, we primarily sin against God. And the wages of that sin is death. Therefore, the repentant thief, after making reconciliation, or before making reconciliation with man, was to bring to the priest a ram without blemish for a guilt offering to be slaughtered. Verse seven, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he the thief, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. In other words, the animal took the place of the sinner, the thief, paid his price, which was death. The ram made atonement for the sinner. Again, this is an important lesson we need to learn. When we sin, we primarily sin against God. When we sin, we primarily sin against God and we need to seek reconciliation not only with man, man to man, but also seek reconciliation between God and man. And listen, the price for that reconciliation is not 400%, it's not 200%, it's an infinitely higher price. It's only through death that we can find reconciliation between God and man. It's only through death that we can find forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, which is death, there is no forgiveness of sin. Again, verse seven, look at verse seven. It says, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Now this brings me to the third and final thing that I believe we can learn from our passage. And the the third thing is this. We can learn how to better understand the New Testament because of our passage this morning. How to better understand the New Testament because of our passage this morning. If you would, turn to Luke 19. Luke 19. We'll end on this passage this morning. It's a very, very familiar story to most of us. It's one of those stories that we have on flannel graphs within the Sunday school class, it just makes a great flannel graph picture. We have songs about this story. It's a great story, but there is a meaning behind this story that's super important. First one, he, which is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there is a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and he, he was rich. Now, tax collectors were rich and I don't want to get into the whole system, but, but but purely through theft. They would go door to door with thugs, with Roman thugs, demanding taxes, and they got to determine how high these taxes would be. And they often would determine it much higher than was due and just pocket the extra, meaning I just think about this. They would walk around door to door with, with Roman thugs again. You, you wouldn't fight against these people and rob them. And this is the, the, the definition of a thief. Zacchaeus was a thief, verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was on an account of the crowd he could not because he was small in statue. He was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, this is a big deal, especially for Zacchaeus. For all all the people that Jesus could have stayed with, in Jesus' popularity at this point, he picks a thief, Zacchaeus. And and we have this picture of these poor, oppressed people that Jesus kept, you know, people that were uh, leopards or prostitutes, that people just picked on in society nonstop, We don't picture, like, um, uh, a CEO of a big company that has robbed everyone from their money and is living really wealthily, right? That's who this is. This is a rich man, well off because of his stealing. And everyone knew it and hated him. And Jesus said, I'm staying at your house today. And look what he says. He received him joyfully. Zacchaeus was stoked about it. He was excited. Verse 7. When they, this is a religious leader, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, right? Everyone hated Zacchaeus, so he would rob everyone. And no one liked this guy. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, and I want you to just hear this repented heart. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I'll take half of my riches right now, boom, to the poor. What are you going to do with the other half? Like he is well this. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, now let me stop here because I want to think about this very clearly. Let me ask a question. According to the law, what was the thief required to give here? Let me give you some context. He has realized his guilt. He has admitted his sin. He is willing to make reconciliation and, and restoration of the property that he has stolen. Before he was forced to by anyone, according to Leviticus 6, he owed 120%, right? Well, look what he says, verse 8. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 400%. Four times its value. Now, what is this referring to? Exodus 22, our passage this morning. Listen, any Jew that knew his law, which was most of them, would read this and automatically think Exodus 22. Recognize right away that Zacchaeus was admitting to be the worst type of sinner. The worst type of thief. Deserving the worst type of punishment. The law only required 120% from Zacchaeus, but he joyfully, joyfully was willing to give fourfold, 400%. Yeah, that's a repentant heart. That's someone that, that knows he's a sinner, knows what he's done, also knows he's forgiven, and that's why he joyfully gives it. But there's still a problem, isn't there, as we've looked through Leviticus 6? I mean, just think about what we've learned today. Who has Zacchaeus primarily sinned against? Not just once, right? He hasn't sinned against God just once, but he's lived a whole life of sinning against God. And what is the penalty for sinning against God? Death. Leviticus 6 makes this just extremely clear, right? How is he going to make restitution with God when he owes death? Well, look what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus, it's come to his house. Well, Now, this is a great story. We love this story, but, but how could Jesus say this? I just want to ask that. How could Jesus say you're saved, in, in one way of saying it? I mean, what about justice? God's justice demands death. At this point, Zacchaeus has not brought a ram to the priest. He didn't kill a, a lamb to make atonement for his sins. And remember what Hebrews 9:22 says: without the shedding of blood, that's death. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's no salvation without death, in other words. So how could Jesus say this? How could he say, today salvation has come to this house? Here's how. Jesus is the ram. He is the ram. He is the salvation that has come to Zacchaeus's house. Jesus is the ram talked about in Leviticus 6.6, 6, the ram without blemish, the completely spotless, sinless. Because of Zacchaeus' faith in Jesus, that's why he's so joy to have him come to his house. Salvation has literally come to his house. Jesus is going to take Zacchaeus' place on the cross as the Lamb of God to make atonement for his sins, to die on the cross for his sins so that Zacchaeus could be saved. He is going to pay the wages, wages, the the debt Zacchaeus owed, that God's justice demand, death, so that Zacchaeus could be reconciled with God. and that's exactly what Jesus came to do to bring reconciliation between God and man. That's what he says in verse 10 for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. To die on the cross for their sins, to pay the debt that they owe. This is the most important thing. This is the most important thing the church does. Is proclaim the gospel, protect the gospel, Be all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come for political reasons, He came to seek and save the lost. What's it matter if man and man are reconciled if they spend eternity in hell? What's it matter if a Republican gets in office this next round if people are spending eternity in hell? What's it matter if we feed the poor and they spend eternity in hell? We Lose focus of the gospel, what we do is pointless. Listen, our passage this morning points us to the gospel. It's the most important thing. We should seek reconciliation between man and man. We should feed the poor. We should be involved politically and vote because we have that freedom. We're blessed. But there is no reconciliation with God outside of Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus, nothing else can we be saved. Like you, if you add anything to it, you negate the gospel. That's why we separate ourselves from other religions that add to the gospel. Faith that he came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins, he paid the penalty we owed, he was raised on the third day. And whoever believes in him and as faith alone shall be saved. Whoever believes in him will be reconciled with God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we need to be about as a church. Let me just end with this question. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, nothing else, not your works, not the church, not anything else, but him alone, faith in him alone, and the work he has done for those that he loves. If you haven't, today's the day. If you'd like to talk after the service, I'd be more than willing to find one of the other pastors or elders here. They'd love to talk to you about the gospel. Let's pray. God, but I know our passage this morning is about theft and stealing, Lord, and we read through that. And God, but, but this passage is way more than that. This passage is about how to be reconciled with you, Lord. God, that's what the whole scriptures are about. Adam and Eve sinned, and man has been separated from you. There is no reconciliation, but you promise a seed to come to to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins so that for those who put their faith in him, we can have reconciliation. We can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can spend eternity with you. God, I pray for courage In our church, for those that are a part of, of this church and, and other gospel centered churches, Lord, that we would stand on convictions, the conviction that this is the most important thing. That we wouldn't lose sight, Lord, on the forgiveness and grace offered to us through your Son on issues that are important but not as important as eternity in hell. Give us courage to stand for, on, and in the gospel. In your son's name, amen.